Yes, of course. Burl Baron. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Hi, I'm Burl Bear. We're broadcasting live from the gleaming Streamline Studios of Outlaw Radio, live.com, nestled at our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Uh, sitting next to me, the brilliant and talented, mild-mannered former reporter, award-winning. You won too many awards to mention, so we'll just call you award-winning journalist. Frank C. Gerard. I won the, uh, one of those awards was Alta Boy of the Year. <laughs> and what did you have to do to earn that? It's, it's interesting. <laughs> Burl has Alta Cocker. Yeah, the Alta Cocker of the Year Award. Stephen Singular, it's a singular yeah. pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Joyce is on. Hi. Yeah. Hey, Joyce. Welcome. Thanks for having me on with Steve today. Oh, it's wonderful to have both of you here. Uh, I, I think it can be stressful to have two people in the uh, the same kind of profession because you never really have any time off because you're always liable to be thinking of work. No, you know, it, it's it's the opposite for us, Burl. Um, we get along fine when we're working on a on a book project. It's the little things like who didn't empty the dishwasher, that type of thing, you know, yeah. that, that sets us off. Yeah. Especially if the dishwasher is some guy you hire to come into the house once a week. <laughs> In case you don't know, we broadcast live from a replication of an uh, what 1876 Virginia City style bar in Matt Allen's backyard and it really does look exactly like a Virginia City style bar. It even has real alcohol which Are I don't... Are you serving? Uh, yes. Uh, we unfortunately have had people get very drunk in the Lighten Up Lounge. In fact, I remember the evening that Matt Allen had to get up and beat the crap out of uh, Grizzly Adam's son. And Grizzly Adam's son will not be returning, I think, after that. He did something wrong with his mouth, as in something he said. And uh, the next thing he knew, Matt's fist was where his mouth had been. Well, you've, de you've definitely cornered the humor market on serial killing. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the strongest chapter is in your book, that'll be chapter one. That's yeah. why so many books start off with a real hot chapter, then flash back to all the boring stuff <laughs> until it catches up to where. And, and, and media race. So where were we? Oh, Frank C. Gerardo wants to start our actual program now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Frank, go ahead. Well, then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I will start us off. Okay, yeah, go right ahead. I have a lovely question for our lovely uh, guest. Yeah. Um, what did you? What did you think you could bring to this story? I mean, I'll well, let me let me tell you a little bit of background on that. Um, up in rural Kansas, in a town of 900 people, which was very very similar to the t kind of town that Dennis Rader grew up in. He grew up in a town of about the same size, north just north of Wichita. I grew up in near Topeka in eastern Kansas. Again, very rural, small, very heavily religious, saturated with all these various branches of Christianity. I mean, you could have a town of 900 people with six or seven churches, believe it or not. That's exactly where he came from. Repression, sexual repression, the idea of artistic expression being more or less non-existent. So he, uh, that's one aspect. The background was that I had with him was very similar. Uh, the way the book, gen its genesis was that uh, we would go out to visit my parents in this small town uh, every spring after our son got out of school and we were there and my son and I were shooting baskets at, at the gym and my old coach was there and he came up and he said you have to write about the BTK case which had broken a couple of months earlier two or three months earlier and I didn't I wasn't, I, I knew it had been heavily covered, and I thought, well, I don't really need to do that. And he said, no, I'm serious. My, my son-in-law was on the task force that investigated BTK for a year and ultimately was there when he was arrested. He was one of the people that actually put him on the ground. And he said, you need to talk to him. And he pulled out his phone and dialed it and just handed it to me. And the next day I was in Wichita interviewing the two most important people in the book from, from my particular 
particular perspective. One was the guy on the task force who had all kinds of inside information about how the police worked on this case and, and what they did and the enormous frustration in trying to catch this guy after he sort of came out of the woodwork in February and March of 2004 after a, an absence of 15 years and apparently he hadn't killed for 15 years. Um, then he started tinkering with the police and sending them stuff and it was 11 months later when they actually got him. So there was a whole narrative there about what the police were doing and how that worked. What, what, what kept him uh, out of the scene? Why did he retire for 15 years? Well, probably because Kansas had reinstated the death penalty. That'll slow We're you down. not absolutely certain that he didn't kill more people than 10. The 10 are, you know, talked about in the book. And he was also getting older. And it was getting harder for him to, he was having to pick older women to strangle because, you know, he didn't have the strength. <laughs> you have to check their ID first. <laughs> and he was also, he killed the first seven or eight people in Wichita. And then he started being a predator right in this little town that, that I just laid out Right for in you. his own backyard. Yeah, yeah, people that he knew. Yeah, he and, and so he no. was doing this, as you may or may not know, as the president of his church, as the Lutheran congregation right outside of Park City where he was from. So the story just, you know, gets more and more bizarre. The second person I talked to that day was his pastor, Pastor Michael Clark, of this congregation who was a f fantastic character. You know, we all know that when you're writing this kind of book, A, you need somebody who will really talk to you, somebody who really knows something, and then hopefully they're a colorful character. And this is the kind of guy who'd had all these tragedies in his life, and when he needed to help himself or others, he'd put on a clown suit and just drive around the country and do clown acts. And he was just fantastic. But he was the, the pastor of the church, and, and Raider was the president, so he was the closest person to the pastor, and, and the pastor relied on him for everything and thought he was absolutely the salt of the earth. So mm -hmm. it's, it, when the police came to the church to tell him who Dennis Raider really was, he, his life actually sort of pivoted there, and he was never quite the same. Yeah, I would imagine that kind of you know, knocked all the underpinnings out of his whole mental construct of who was... Who was, what absolutely. was real and what wasn't. Yeah, absolutely, because when you can't even trust your perception of, of the people around you, and, you, you know, you, you have to second-guess then if you're, if you're accurate at all in your perceptions of your fellow human beings, if somebody could pull something like that right under your nose. Well, and you know, you know, anybody who writes these kinds of books, I mean, you're, you're always struggling with the notion of good versus evil, life, light versus dark, et cetera. The arrest came on a Friday around noon, and right at that moment, Pastor Clark had finished writing his sermon for Sunday. And then the four policemen show up, and they tell him what's going on, and a lot of things ensue after that. But one of the first things he does is tear up his sermon and throw it in the trash can and say, I don't, I don't understand good and evil anymore. I don't know what's going on. And he sort of had to, you know, recalibrate his whole notion. And he'd been a minister for about 20 years at that point. So it's pretty dramatic. Wow. That's a great setup. Yeah, I, really I, really, I just I like the imagery of that pastor finishing his sermon and... You know, tearing it up because his yeah. whole world has just been turned inside out. Yeah, well, and th this guy, um, you know, the BTK guy, it was a nut. I mean, some of the stuff he did was was. <laughs> well, you're not going to invite him over for dinner. No, well, people did invite him over for dinner, but I, I, I mean, he's. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> We have this effect on our guests. Maybe, I'm sorry maybe, about maybe this. Maybe nut is the wrong characterization. <laughs> I don't know. But gentlemen, um, we've discussed this many times on the show, but individuals like this, a psychopath, have an incredible ability to compartmentalize, to separate the two lives from each other. Right. Yeah. Just like I say, if it weren't for having a double life, I'd have no life at all. <laughs> yeah, well, this... this this is the classic example of that because he he lived in a 900 foot square house with his wife of 30 years or so um, he had two children he was by most or all accounts a good father a good husband 
uh, he was going out and killing these people and then bringing trophies or writings or newspaper articles and stashing them around the house in what he called hiding holes. So, I mean, he was literally, you know, and there are a couple instances in the book where they would put BTK's writing on television where he'd send in these messages and his wife and he'd be watching the news and she'd turn to him and say, you know, his handwriting is just like <laughs> just yours. Just like yours. Yeah. And wow. he would say, ah, oh, just a coincidence, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, but also his daughter, Carrie Rawson, later wrote in her book about him, which I thought was a really interesting perspective after having worked on it from, from our angle, that he did have a, a, a pretty bad temper that she witnessed growing up. And at one point, he, he got mad at her brother, and he put his, his hands around his neck as if to start strangling him. So they oh. saw these flashes of, of that other side of him come out from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how accurate, for example, is a show like The Mind Hunter, which you know sort of depicts his crimes as it works its way through? Uh, well, they've only really put a, a little bit, only a few teasers from, and I've watched every episode of The Mind Hunter on Netflix, and what I can tell, they're just they're just barely touching the surface, and I think they're doing it in a really good way to entice people, you know, to come back and watch when they really do that full story. Yeah, I mean, it, it. nobody has really touched, you know, the full story yet. I mean, the things that he was doing, for example, uh, you know, I, I alluded earlier to him having this sort of artistic side, and when he was young, he would do drawings. He initially got into this, uh, bro, I'm sure is old enough to remember those True Detective magazines. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when the printing press was invented. As a kid. I think his father had them, and he would see women you know, in bondage or women, you know, shrieking back in horror. And he started to draw pictures like that when he was young. And he was always seeking some artistic expression uh, in writing or, or drawing or things like that. And then he also began to study, as, as many serial killers do, other serial killers. Right. Starting yeah, with it's H. like H. they can't Holmes. get together and talk and shop that often. So wait, I, wait, it makes sense. I, I want to hear more about this. Yeah. yeah. Tell me and, more. And then he went, you know, he studied Jack the Ripper and Ted Bundy. Son of Sam. Harvey Gladman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who also, um, his MO was tying up women. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, so I, you know, I was a reporter way back when, and I remember covering a serial killer um, back Ramirez. in the late 80s, early 90s. And one of the things well, that... Uh, I'm having a hard time hearing oh, yeah. Okay. So I was a reporter back in the 80s and 90s, and uh, one of the things that I remember covering a serial killer case was the... Um, the police, uh, the sheriff's department detective, telling me that if you had a um, a near miss, somebody that survived an attack, that you wanted to talk to that person because they could give you the best idea of a, who your subject might be. Was there some kind of near miss with uh, Dennis Rader? Well, that Sullivan woman was that Anna Sullivan? Was that her name? Well, no. The 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 most the best near near miss was that. His first killing, which was the most spectacular, was that he managed to go into a house with four people, father, uh, mother, and two children, s subdue them all, and kill them. That's, that's a whole other story. But the second one he did was uh, he was stalking this woman named Catherine Bright, and he w thought she would be there alone. But when he, he went into her apartment, I believe he was hiding in there, and she came home with her brother. And so he tied them up, and he got in a big fight with the brother. Uh, the brother actually pulled out BTK's gun, stuck it into BTK's stomach, pulled the trigger, but it didn't fire. Oh. And then Raider got a hold of the gun and shot him, I believe, twice, and one, in, the, in the head and in the face. Yeah, so they couldn't really take his description to right. be that accurate because... He, he got away. He right. got away and ran to the, right. got to the hospital. Then BTK kills his sister after he's gone. 
but they couldn't rely on his testimony because he'd been shot and they felt he was you know significantly disabled so that was a that was a near miss uh, there were other than the next thing he did was go into a, a woman's house pretty much at random and she had three small kids but he locked them in the bathroom and they weren't able to really give a good physical description but then there was also that time that after he committed one crime he went to a payphone and called the police and said you know I, you will find I believe it was Nancy Fox right yeah, yeah. and and then he he dropped the phone down let, got into his van and just by happenstance the the fire chief was yep. coming out of a convenience store and the dispatch operator was still on the line she thought she was still talking to Raider and and he picked up the phone and she said well you know who, did you see anybody and he and he gave a, a description of that van yeah and and of the person it was relatively accurate but from the very beginning, what Raider wanted and what he ultimately got, of course, was a lot of attention for what he was doing. I mean, it led, that's what led to his arrest. But he killed the four people in the Otero family that I just mentioned, and then it created this huge, huge investigation in, in, in Wichita, and it didn't go anywhere. And about seven, eight, nine months after the murder, there were these three guys that you will like this for your show that um, took credit for the uh, for the murders, but also said that they had had sex with a duck. They were, needless to say, mentally ill, and this Needle all came swaggering. out in the media, and it made Raider so angry that he wrote this very elaborate letter saying, they, those guys didn't kill the Oteros, I killed the Oteros, and then he gave this remarkably elaborate description of each body, each location, how it is, was done, the whole thing, and it was obvious that he was the killer, but it didn't, you know, it didn't lead to He didn't to sign his name to it, who he was. There was another uh, incident that he talked about where he was hiding in someone's closet, but the, he got tired of waiting for the lady to come home. She was late. Yeah. He's hiding in the closet. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he liked to hide in the closet and wait for surprise the right opportunity. The, surprise the victim. Surprise. Usually, yeah. usually he would wait until they had gone to bed and they were asleep. Did he? Just out of curiosity, did he only, um, you know, murder women, or was? Yeah, I mean, obviously he murdered this whole family, but was he? Is, did he have, uh, Again, you know, sexual you urgings up? with it's, the with the kids? It's very or hard to hear you. No. Did he have sexual urgings with the kids? Is what Frank was asking. Did he? Just primarily want to kill women or uh, guys as well? No, the, the men that he attacked uh, were incidental. They were just there. He had done a lot of scouting and, um, you know, trolling before each crime. He was very meticulous in his planning and plotting, and men never figured into it. He wanted the women or yeah. young women, but if the men just happened to be there, that was he considered that a mistake and a botched crime. He wanted the perfect crime where he could have plenty of time to pose the women and do whatever he wanted with them. He, and eventually he got so good at that that that's exactly what he did. Did he take and, photographs? And you know, or if you think about B BTK, I mean, that's exactly what Joyce is saying. First he would bind them. Then he would take considerable amount of time, if if he had it and things went his way, torture, and then finally kill, and in several cases, you know, um, ejaculate at the crime scene, leaving behind very critical DNA starting in 1974. And it was that DNA that got him arrested in 2005, 31 years later. Well, it wasn't it what got him arrested. I mean, I thought it was the actual... Well, no, I, I'm... It was the, it yeah. was the piece of evidence that gave the police probable cause. What the DNA? I yeah, thought it, yeah, I they, thought it was they, the they had the DNA. Wait a minute. Well, I thought it was I, the faxes from the no no. It was a CD. It was yeah. a, well that got him that got him taken you know into custody or the process. Yeah. But it was the actual DNA match that led to his arrest. Wow, this guy is just okay. Yeah, the He's, way he got caught is is again it's it's a fascinating. Twist. Did they so going back to the 1970s? Did they save all the DNA from you know 74? Yes. So they did. They saved there it to blood DNA. type it. I assume back then. 
He committed a crime in in 74 with DNA, and in 77 with DNA left behind, and in 86 with DNA left behind. So all of those would match. You know, uh, Frank and I uh, did a book that people should buy immediately after they buy yours, uh, called A Taste for Murder, where at the beginning of the book, uh, we go through all the ways you can kill people and why you're going to get caught. You know, there's there's like very few ways you can kill somebody and get away with it. And all these ways that he's doing it are not ways you're going to get away with it. Right, right. It's it, it's a part of this whole story because there was a sense in Wichita that this master criminal was out there, this mastermind, brilliant guy, because he'd gotten away with this. And it was just, he was very haphazard, he was very sloppy. And the, the problem was with that, you know, FBI profiling was very new, serial killer profiling, by in the mid-70s. And they brought him in and they said, well, who is this guy? Well, okay, he lives alone, he's a total loner, he's antisocial, he couldn't fit into society and be this weird. You know, he's, he's uh, this is the profile, of course. And, and he, lives, he lives in the city. He has to live in Wichita because, you know, you can fit in easier in a city. He didn't live in the city. He was married. He was totally social creature, going to church, ultimately got a job. He worked at ADT, the security system. That's a bit of irony there to figure out, you know, how to get into people's homes. And then a member of the church, uh, the community, the whole thing. The whole profile was wrong. And whenever they were going out to swab people for DNA, they were doing it in the Wichita city limits. He would never, ever have been caught if he hadn't, you know, re-engaged with the police in in 2004 and started taunting them. He'd well, be free to do. Also, he wanted that this thing where he got so outraged that someone else was taking credit. I mean, it's like right. wag the dog. I want credit for this production. <laughs> You know, yeah, if we're going to do it, we got to get credit. <laughs> yeah, he's very proud of his livelihood. No, no. Well, that's like that uh, guy Tearhouse that uh, Dan Sapansky wrote about. Who the whole reason that he committed the crime that was so horrific was because he wanted to be known as the worst killer in the history of Canada. That's the reason yeah. he did it. Yeah. He wanted the fame. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so would, so his neighbors, would, everybody that he knew, just thought he was a straight, normal dude. Uh, right. he, nobody ever, other than the one instance where his daughter saw him lose his temper, there was never an indicator from anybody that he was a little bit off. Well, when he worked as a compliance officer in Park City, um, he he would go out of his way to be, I mean, just totally. I mean, just really took his job to the ninth degree. I mean, for example, he would he would measure the grass with a ruler, and if somebody's grass was you know an inch higher than the you know the preferred amount that it had to be to you know before it could be mown, he would write up citations for people. Usually for single women. Yeah. It was usually oh, it was, of course. The hostility was always toward women. Right. To to answer Frank's question, there were two women that did have restraining orders out against him for stalking. So there were some people that did see some aberrant behavior and took action, but nobody really cared, I guess. Well, they didn't pay attention. You must have the wrong guy. He must have liked, uh, you know, the clown suit or something. No, he wasn't the clown. No, the, the pastor was the clown. Was the, clown. No, the pastor was the clown, yeah. They're thinking of John Gacy. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. But, I always uh, get these serial killers confused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Give credit to the wrong one. Really pisses there were, them off. There were flashes of temper and hostility towards certain women at work, you yeah. know, things like that, but nothing of the extremities. I didn't actually go ahead and tell you what those extremities were earlier. For example, he would dress up in women's clothing, put on a wig, go into his parents' basement in that same small town, put a noose around his neck, tie it to a pipe, which was the way he killed one of the Oteros, and then snap pictures of himself in these totally bizarre outfits. He would go out into the woods, dig a hole, become naked, cover himself in plastic with his butt sticking out, set up a remote camera and shoot himself 
lying in the grave. I mean, the idea of, if you want to extend, you know, the analysis here, sort of symbolically killing yourself or, you know, making yourself your own victim or all of that. Uh, and then he would get naked and he would create a set of pulleys and ro ropes between trees out in the woods and he would swing around naked in the trees. I mean, this is... A grand yeah, paraphilia. He, yeah. so. And some of these crimes he committed while he was actually attending the Boy Scout camp where his son was involved in. Was, uh, yeah, and was, uh, when they would go to sleep, he would take off and commit the murder and then come back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wow. because Whoa. he always had to be, on those occasions, he didn't have to go home at night. A and but had an alibi. But he was stalking, like yeah. you mentioned was earlier, boy scout hiding camp, in honey, somebody's honey. closet, mm -hmm. waiting for them to come home. If they didn't come home, he kept thinking, God, i got to go home. Paula's going to, you know, if I'm not there at 10 o'clock, she's going to get upset. Yeah. <laughs> so, Meanwhile, i got to kill know. these people before I go home. Yeah, I got it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, this thing uh, with the, the uh, swinging from the trees and all that remained like 400 men a year. Well, die from having sex with their farm machinery. Yeah, well, <laughs> you, know, with, you don't get Dear John letters, you get humor John Deere letters. And, <laughs> humor and true crime go together so well. Yeah, dear, dear listener, <laughs> please, please save me. It's true. Has save he, me. Uh, wait, I just want to know. Like, so early childhood trauma, any evidence of that? Any evidence of him having been sexually molested? Um, you know, he claimed, and it's really hard to take anything that he said without really questioning his veracity. He did claim, after he'd been arrested, that, you know, he would get stimulated when his mother would spank him. But I, I, I don't believe a lot of the things that he said, even in his, you know, confession to the police. For example, you know, he he made it sound as though he was very uh, sad about his family having to go through the trauma of now, you know, being exposed and, you know, very and just pity pity me type of thing in front of the judge. And but but he had also said to the police that when he was arrested, that he had left a whole cache of videos and. And clippings and drawings and writings so that and he was going to put him in a safety deposit box so that after he was dead someday someone would open the box and find out who the BTK really was well when you think about it who's going to open up his, the safety his deposit kids, box his, right but your your family yeah. so I don't really buy everything that he says is the gospel truth. So you know? there's no there's no evidence yeah. of any kind of significant abuse yeah. of any kind. He you know that psychological profile again just doesn't fit. But uh, but he seemed to know that something was wrong with him. Of course, even as a young man, he was having these very strange thoughts. But he never sought out help. He never yeah. sought out any kind well, where of Where is he going to help? find qualified help in a town of 900 people? Well, yeah, Meninger's, that time uh, isn't it called no, Meninger's? No, Meninger's? The Meninger Clinic is in Topeka. You know, that's one of, that was one of the most foremost psychiatric you know, facilities. And, and BTK, like many serial killers uh, we know, you know, at an early age was killing animals. He yeah. was killing birds. Yeah. He strangled a cat. We dogs. think he killed in dogs. Barns. In barns. You know, and, so and I, grew up, I grew up with a kid... Uh, in my little town who did the same thing and his parents you know got him off into uh, actually I think took him to Menninger's uh, psychiatric clinic and got him some help and he did sort of get straightened out but this guy's entire life was secretive I don't think he, he had three brothers and I don't think he ever shared anything with them or his parents <clears throat> the only people he would reveal himself to and say I'm BTK were, was when he was killing them well, one person, Nancy one, Fox, yeah, and he then, whispered that to her before she died. Yeah, right. right. Uh, well, how 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 would anyone know that? Because he said that he did that. He said he did it. Yeah, he told him in I a see. confession. See, yeah. when he was arrested, February twenty fifth, two thousand five. Again, this is a person who never revealed anything to anyone ever. So the police had kind of a whole strategy for dealing with him. They took him into the FBI building and to show that how important his arrest was. He began talking with a, a, a variety of officers. He did not stop talking for 32 hours. 32 hours straight wow. of information. 
about each the details of each killing and how he planned it and all of that. And, and he, so, I take it he get he gets off on reliving it. So well, plus yeah. getting the no, credit, making sure yeah. that he knows the details. Yeah, he was like, boy, I really like these guys. You know, they're interested in me. You know, I finally have an audience. But yeah. but interestingly too, one of the psychologists interviewed in the book said that really the only people that he could be himself with were the people that he killed after they were dead. Yeah. That was really the only way he could reveal who he really, really was at heart, this other person, this other thing living inside of him, which so, he called Rex or Factor X. So that's why he kept souvenirs then, because he could... You know, that's how he explained his behavior, yeah. that he was possessed by a demon, which... You know, most I'm people don't really buy. Yeah. yeah. No, there's so a, so how how far into his killing spree did he come up with the name BTK? Did he come up with Rex? No, BTK. Sorry, that's my um, right, right when he sent um, this letter, as I told you, he killed the four Oteros. Somebody else took credit for it, and then he wrote this elaborate thing, uh, which would have been October of '74, and that's when he said, "You know, this is this is what I do." You know, he wanted to absolutely give himself a label, you know, to compete with these other serial killers that Joyce talked. Well, he wanted to be he branded. Also wanted to. He created what he called BTK Productions. He yep. viewed his whole history that's of killing right. as a sort of a movie, you know. And when he went up in front of the judge. Um, it was sort of like he was accepting an award, you know, yeah. at the Academy Awards. Yeah. Best performance by a serial killer? Yeah. 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 But one of the sidelines that I personally have found fascinating is that, so he confessed to the authorities for 32 hours, and then he did essentially the same confession on live television in June of 2005, four months later, when during the hearing where the judge would sentence him. So the opinion was, well, he pretty much told us his story. Um, these, are, these are the women he killed, etc. So when the book came out in April of 2006, I was on Anderson Cooper. He actually did an hour on this case, and and I was on with him. And Joyce was here in Denver, and we started getting emails from people who were at the right during the well, show through our website because yeah. they were flashing on the screen, you know, www.stevensingular.com. And that's where we started getting some and interesting emails. people, one woman talking about, I think I was stalked by him. I think he drove up my driveway at a certain time, but he, you know, he There's didn't come in. But then this guy comes in from Wichita and says, you know, well, let me tell you about the Dennis Raider I knew. There was never a hint of homosexuality in his background or, or in his killing or anything like that. And, and this guy told us about how he, where gay people sort of gathered in Wichita in the 60s, a small gay community, but the bars they went to and all that, and how he would, Raider would be there, and he was profoundly conflicted about his sexuality, and he would say very hostile things about gay people, but then he would go back there, and this guy went out on a date with him, and in the middle of the date, uh, BTK suddenly attacks him, ties him up. But he had him dress up as a woman. Yeah, he had him dress up as a woman, and then he assaulted him with exactly the same kind of, you know, knots and tying that would later be used in his crimes, and he went on and on about, this is a side that he's never talked about. This is what he's never confronted. Boy Scout, so that was the Boy Scout camp training, the knots right. and all that stuff. Right. And he thought that Raider had, com had killed a man uh, who was gay. Uh, in the late 60s, uh, that that crime that was never solved. So there may be more than the 10 killings, but it again, it opened You up. kind of anticipated my next question, because it seems like when you kill the whole Otero family, that that's not your first taste of blood. This guy absolutely did not believe it was, because Raider was talking about certain details. This fellow was sort of a police informant, you know, in, in and around that community uh, at that time. And the police had told him that the, the killer had left a dime on the, on the victim's hip, naked hip, 
up to say his life wasn't worth a dime. And then Rader made a, later made a reference to that around that time, and he thought only the killer would know that. Yeah, but so. the interesting thing about when he killed the Otero family, this was a this was a time in our nation's history that serial killers weren't well known. So when he forced his way into that house, and first of all, he didn't know that the father and the son were going to be there. The young son, who's only yep. nine, and he, you know, he he just said, "Oh well, I'm 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 running away from the law. I'm from California. I only I need I just need your your money and your cash and your and your car, and I'll leave you alone." And they complied, and and people didn't lock their doors back then. So back then, I think it was easier for him to, you know, gain entry the way he did. All all four of the people had training in martial yeah. arts and were good at it, and they had a dog. And nobody could figure out until his ultimate confession in 2005 how one guy could get in there, tie them all up, you know, and then proceed to kill them one by one. Just like they did in Cold Blood. Yeah, very similar. And he stole uh, a radio, I believe. Just like he did in Cold Blood. Just like Perry exactly. Smith did in Cold Blood. He probably recreating a bit of that crime intentionally. Yes. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Yep. You know, they probably could have caught him earlier if they would have simply gone on the radio and TV and said, if the person does this, who did this, if they will confess, they can confess during the Golden Globes. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably would have jumped at that opportunity. He desperately wanted attention for what he had done. Mm -hmm. And again, that, see, that that's what triggered his whole arrest. And, and February, January of 20, uh, 2004, which was the 30th year anniversary of the Otero murders, the, which, the Eagle, Wichita Eagle paper, did a big spread and said, you know, this is the anniversary, and they speculated, and they said, well, he's probably dead. And somebody, and they mentioned that someone was writing a book about yeah, it. that's And true. that's what really triggered him. He said, I, I, if anybody's going to write a book, it's going to be me. I'm, I know what I did. I'm going to write about myself, you know. And he was already starting to write about it. He had extensive writings in his what he called his mother load cache. Yeah, and yeah. he would he had the names of all the chapters, and w yeah. then he would subsequently start sending them into the police. So he read this article, and it, it made him really angry. He said, "I'm not dead, you know." <laughs> and he was, and then remember, Steve, he said he he told the police that he had planned for his you know coup de gras, yeah, the um to 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 stage a murder sort of like they did in Silence of the Lambs, where yep. that security guard was strung up yep. from the ceiling with right. his hands tied behind him. That's what his next, you know, uh, plan was going to be. Right. So he started communicating with the police after that article came out, and he sent them crime scene photos of one of the of crime in 1986, and with the driver's license of the victim, and only the killer would have had those things. So they knew it was him. They knew he was back. He wasn't dead. And they launched this huge investigation. They, again, they swabbed 4,500 people in the Wichita area, but you know he wasn't there. And, and so those he were, now was that voluntary? Mouse game of sending in you know writings and letters, chapters of his le book, le leaving Barbie dolls positioned right. that are were tied, you know, tied up by you know um, signposts and yeah. Yeah, and this went on again for just about a year, and he didn't make any mistake. And then he sent in well, wait, well, no, but before that, remember, he did make a mistake. His his son-in-law had left his truck with him, and Raider took it to a like a Walmart, Home Depot. Oh, was it Home Depot? And yeah. and, and he didn't know that they had a, a you know a, a security Se ca camera out in the parking lot. He wasn't aware of that. And he was placing one of these missives to the police in the bed of a, of a truck adjacent to where he had parked. And they got that on tape. And they saw the figure. They didn't see his face, but they did see the, the make of the truck. So that was right. one mistake. And so, then, yeah, you go ahead and tell the story. Well, so what was in this package that was on that video was that he, he was communicating directly with the lieutenant who was running the investigation. And so he said, Lieutenant Landwehr, 
you know, if I were to put something on a on a floppy disk, uh, computer disk, uh, you wouldn't be able to trace me through that, would you? And, if, and Lieutenant Lander, of course not. You know, <laughs> absolutely not. So if you send a photograph, we can't tell who you are either. Yeah, he didn't know anything about computers or any of that. And of course, stuff is hard to get off a disk once it's on there. And so, in that package was a purple diskette. And the police got it, and they went to the property section of it. Yeah, and the forensics. So on they it. thought, well, this, you know, this will take months to search this thing, and you know, maybe we'll get a hit. Ten minutes later, it comes up, Dennis, uh, for Christ Lutheran Church, and they knew they knew who he was, and they realized he's the president of the congregation. And so then they started their surveillance of him in Park City, watching everything he did. But they didn't have what they needed, which was DNA. And, yeah, and then they found they got that from his daughter, her records, her gynecological records at uh, was it Wichita State? Yeah, Kansas State Kansas University. Kansas State University. And that's when they that's when they knew they had him for sure. Yeah, they got a match on that, mm -hmm. and so then they proceeded to arrest him. But his daughter. I Joyce, you read that book. Yeah. So I think his daughter was very upset that. And, and Rader was outraged, you know, in the letters that he sent to his daughter afterwards, after he was arrested. He, you know, he just said, "Oh, you should sue the police department because they violated your privacy." Right. I mean, right. it's just so crazy that you know he could get so upset over that, but not over killing well, all these people. And then, then when they arrested him and they took him to the FBI building, Lieutenant Landwehr was there with the FBI special agent. And when they started to sort of close in on him, you know, they brought out the diskette, you know, Landwehr slides it across the table, and he knows that, that he's caught. And he looks at the lieutenant, he says, Ken, why did you lie to me? Why did you lie to me about that, <laughs> that diskette? That's what he's mad and about. And Landwehr says, uh, I was trying to catch you. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. So his feelings were really hurt, you know, that... Well, that's this like uh, we, we mentioned what last week about Kirby Anthony, who murdered his aunt and her two adorable little children. And that didn't bother him to talk about that at all, but to bring up the fact that he had had sex with a, a transsexual that he thought was a woman. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, then when he found out it was a guy, he killed him. You bring that up, and he was furious. How yeah. dare you mention yeah. that I right. had sex with Walter before I killed him? Yeah. yeah, regular logic doesn't apply to these. you got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you got to only be pushed so far. Killing people, that's no problem. But, yeah. no, having yeah. sex with Walter, forget it. Yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I wanna, I wanna, if I may, I would like to ask you, too, about your writing process. You seem to be able to complete each other's sentences uh, verbally pretty well. But, but not <laughs> empty the dishwasher together. <laughs> but, but, but how does it work? I mean, do you trade well, off chapters? Do you? Well, no, I'll tell you. What, what we noticed when we first started working together back in the early 90s was that, you know, the old adage, two heads are better than one. Well, sometimes two genders are better than one because I could... I would observe things differently when we were, like, say, covering a murder trial, and I could describe maybe what the uh, defendant was wearing if she was a woman and how she was trying to appear to be more innocent than she actually was. Or I would, I would overhear women's conversations in the in the restroom, and then I would go back and report to Steve. And then, and then after that, we'd get a couple of book, book contracts at the same time, so I'd have to start covering a murder trial separately. And then we would combine our notes together. And... That, and that's how it started. And then I would generally write a first draft. You know, I would write a draft because writing together, as you probably know, is is hard. So, you know, I'd write a draft that's and Joyce would come in and yeah, you have to be tough <laughs> in this business. So. Well, I guess maybe one of us, uh, Frank, should have a gender reassignment surgery. No, it's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> I, 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 but I mean, I always have my wife, you know, look over what I'm, what I'm reading to get the, uh, you know, to um, get her. Well, to tone, to tone, to tone it down a little bit, make it more, you know, accessible, less, you know, sexist. That's right. good. I think that's really smart. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, that's good because I send my stuff to you and you can show it to her. And yeah, well, yeah. typically that's what I do. Yeah, and then good. she goes, mm -hmm. oh, God, Burl's at it again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why yeah, that's why are you making me read this? <laughs> <laughs> that gives me a great vote of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, it does, it does 
I mean, one, it was going to take some discipline, I imagine, between you two. Uh, you know, and two, you know, job assignment. And then three, ex at some point, one of you has to give in to what the other one wants. Well, yeah, that, you're right about that. Sometimes we've had to kind of concede and say, okay, you're right. You can go ahead and do that, but then I'm. Let's put this in over here. You know, you're right. That's that's a little bit hard coming to. Yeah, we had one of those um, on one of our books. I don't remember what it was. But, what should yeah, stay yeah. in? But generally, we work well together, don't you think, Steve? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it hasn't. It, it's more the dishwashers. Yeah, you know, definitely the the domestic chores. Yeah, that'll yeah. get you. I'm not very good around the house, and you know, that, <laughs> welcome that to the club. Real strong. So. But, but you can speak so well on live television. I mean, really, you know, just, well, just right off the top of your head. just yeah. here, Here's a good example of Joyce is an idea person. And in, in after I was on Anderson Cooper for this BTK book, the, the next story was about Warren Jeffs, who was, I had just been put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And it, it was getting a lot of coverage and, and all of that. And... So Joyce watched it, and she said, you know, we ought to go look into that. And I'm, and I'm always, you know, if this is on national television, a lot of people are covering it. I'm not that interested. But she said, you know, forget about that. And so in June of 2006, we drove down to the Arizona-Utah border. Warren Jeffs, for those who don't know, is the polygamous leader of the what's called the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Mormons. And they were living down there in an outlaw community with incest and child abuse and underage marriage and all kinds of things that the law enforcement had left them alone for about half a century. And so, you know, we did that, and and we started meeting people. And also, uh, if I could just interject, another to your point about, you know, how we work together, we started noticing, even before that book, that as a couple, when we had to approach someone especially someone that had been the victim of a crime. It, it sort of it was a little softer for a couple to approach them, to ask questions and to get them to open up rather than just like Steve by himself. In that particular case, there were a lot of women who had been sexually abused at a very young age, very difficult issues, trauma, PTSD. So yeah, I think having both of us made made that a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so her, her, what Joyce always says, and in that particular case, uh, women will be interested in this story. Well, guess who buys books? You know, yes, women, women yeah. will, will be interested because it was about these women, and you know, they were running around in 19th century clothes with 19th century hairdos, and just a fascinating situation, right? They're in a tiny corner of America. You know, wrote the book. Uh, the book. You know, Joyce sent a book to Senator Harry Reid, who was a majority uh, Senate majority leader at that time. He's a Mormon. He read it. He was pretty much outraged. He invited us to come to Washington D.C. I testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee about crimes associated with polygamy. So, needless to say, you know, her in, her instincts, her ideas were were right on the money. For those so, listening. What's the title of that book? It, it's called When Men Become Gods. And, and, and it's it and then the hardcover came out in oh no, 08, uh, and it came out right as this. there was the raid on the ranch. Some people will remember this Warren Jeffs Ranch in Texas with this white limestone temple, the largest uh, child abuse case in American history erupted right then, which was part of what led to Senator Reed inviting us out there. But uh, the, the paperback includes all of those subsequent so They wanted to create a task force for crimes associated with polygamy, which included, you know, racketeering and the RICO Act and taking minors across state lines. Yep. So, you know, that was um, that was pretty gratifying for us that we actually had a little bit of impact on that. And now, unfortunately, the stock market crash of 2008 occurred right after that hearing. Yeah, ran out of money. Yeah, so yeah. they weren't able to pursue that. Yeah, but in fact, we, we, we had on we had on the show the uh, the fellow from the agency that was taking care of the kids that were confiscated. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he was talking about the things that were trying to do with the kids, and then they wound up having to give all the kids back. 
Yeah, that's right. Exactly. But, but they uncovered uh, in the temple in the basement where Jess is having sex with, you know, apparently allegedly with eleven-year-olds, uh, et cetera, during these sacred ceremonies, uh, and that's what got him arrested again, and that put him away essentially for life. So he's in prison in Texas. He's out of circulation. And, and all the spotlight that was put on that case yeah. kind of drove, you know, either it drove them underground or, or the they stopped committing some of these crimes because they knew now that they were not operating under the radar. So yeah. that was been, that was effective. The yeah. town the town has been reformed to some degree where all this was going on. I don't think as many crimes are being committed. So some good things came out of it. Yeah. Well, while this has been going by real fast, we didn't even get a chance to get into the uh, the the other projects you're working on now or just are finishing up. Uh, what was a strange cult from another planet or something like that? <laughs> well, we just completed a book, um, um, a cult, an anthology on cults that should be coming out this summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's it titled? We don't have a, a title yet. How about um, Head in the Bucket? It, but that, that's, that's an interesting project. We learned a lot about cults. We thought we knew a lot about some of these major cults like Jim Jones and Manson and the... the, the uh, What's the one in California that what they thought they were going to be taken away when the uh, comet came? Uh, and, yeah, and then we also yeah. did some obscure How about the cults. Branch Davidians? Yeah, yeah. And, and we did that one, too. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah, it's an interesting collection of stories. And we, one of Steve's books that I did not work on is, has been optioned for um, a movie. Um, we were not we're not able to say much about that, um, but we are as soon as we are able to, then we're going to post that on our website, stephencmuller.com. So anybody that's interested in what we're working on or the de developments can go to the website. No, oh, that's great. That's I mean that's what every writer wa wants, right? Yeah, we do. <laughs> it's what we aim for. Yeah. 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 Fantastic shows. Thank you so much. And we'll, Thank you. We'll have you back on again. It's always a delight having you guys on. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Welcome. Hey, what's next? Oh. Hey, what's next, Burl? <laughs> Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence, live in the Light Up Lounge on Outlaw Radio Live. dot com. Twenty thousand friends gave their lives for him. 